Welcome to The Drummer's Pathway, the podcast about music, life, and the creative process. Hello, I'm Michael Scott, and welcome to The Drummer's Pathway podcast. Regardless of the paths we've chosen to follow, we can often look back and reflect upon our early influences and see how those experiences have inspired us to pursue our own interests in ways that sometimes can be unique to each of us. My guest today is renowned Canadian drummer Paul DeLong. Best known for his work with Canadian rock legend Kim Mitchell, Paul went on to establish a highly successful career through his work with such diverse artists as Dominic Troiano, David Blameyers, Lawrence Gowan, David Clayton Thomas, Roger Hodson, Rick Emmett, Lighthouse, and many, many more. Paul is also a highly regarded educator, who, in addition to teaching at Humber College for 33 years, has also gone on to inspire the next generation of drummers through his extensive clinics and workshops throughout North America over the years. In our interview today, we talk about his early experiences and how he worked to develop the skills that it took to become a professional drummer. Also, we talk about why it's essential to always keep pushing yourself and to maintain a professional attitude in order to be successful in this business. On a personal level, Paul's also one of my earliest drum influences and a huge inspiration to me. And he was also my first private drum set instructor. So his impact and influence on my own personal development as a drummer has been profound over the years. Let's get started. Paul. Yes. Thank you for being on the podcast. It's been a long time since we've known each other. And so it's nice to actually get a chance to, to connect this way. I agree. It's a wonderful thing. And thanks for asking me. Thanks for having me. So to begin, not only have you established yourself with a great reputation as being one of Canada's most respected drummers, you're also a renowned educator who has gone on to influence thousands of drummers over the years. So if you look back to the beginning, what inspired you to take up the drums in the first place? Uh, two things happened simultaneously. Um, my dad had quite a collection of jazz records, mostly 78s, if that means anything to anybody anymore, 78 RPM. And the, very, and the one that got me was a tune by the Chick Webb Orchestra. It was called Liza. It started with a drum solo. I have it on CD now, but he had the 78. That just, that got me. That was just amazing. Around that same time, I saw Ringo on, with the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. And so, and that got me equally. So I always had those two, <laughs> the jazz world, the rock world, but I knew I wanted to play the drums. And that was, I was like 12 years old. Yeah, I think I started when I was 11 um, at school, um, you know, as typical with a lot of students, you have to take instrumental music to kind of get going. And then from there, I went on and started taking some group lessons. And then I took some private lessons with you actually being my first private drum set instructor when I was 15. So we've, right? known, we've known each other for a long time. So. Holy, I didn't realize I was your first drum instructor. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah you were my first private drum instructor. That's amazing. So when you look back, when you were starting out around 12, did, were you self-taught or did you start taking lessons at an early age? No, I was self-taught until I was 17. I didn't take lessons until I was 17. So I was just hacking away, trying to be Ringo and Keith Moon and um, doing pretty good. Uh, but then I realized I, there's more to this than meets the eye. So I started taking lessons when I was 17. And uh, did you start playing in bands at an early age? When I was 14, I was in my first band, yeah. Was that The Hobbits? That so, was The Hobbits. <laughs> I think I, I read that on your bio, so I was curious about that. So what sort of material did you play at that time? We played uh, Beatles, Rolling Stones, The Who. Um, I don't think there's anything else. There wasn't much else to play rock-wise. 
Uh, yeah, I, that was it in the beginning. The Beatles, the Rolling Stones, and the Who. After that, what were some of the other projects that you did before you started to work kind of as a professional career? Now, there was a band I played with in my later high school years. I think we call it Cerberus. And it was my friend Todd Booth, the keyboard player who, who also, like, Todd uh, arranged a lot of the stuff on Kim Mitchell records. Uh, Kim calls him Staff Man because he's great with, with, with arrangements and ide musical ideas. So Todd was the keyboard player, but the, uh, Jim Creighton from um, Saga was in that band too. And then, and then I, I, yeah, I was in some just some bands around Toronto, a band called Bloodstone about 1971. Um, I did that. And then I'm trying to go chronologically. And then I got out of high school. I, um, I got a gig with this band, the Flower Traveling Band, and they were from Japan. Lighthouse had brought them over here, and the drummer got tuberculosis, and they needed a drummer. So I auditioned. I was like right out of high school, 18 years old, and got the gig. So I played with them. And um, I was just doing that kind of thing, you know, around Toronto, playing whatever work I could get. Uh, you know, like my first major break um, was what was. Uh, Dominic Triano, you know, 1977. Uh, right before that, I had been playing with a guy named Stacy Hayden, who had played guitar with David Bowie. He was from Toronto, but he played with David Bowie, and he came back to Toronto and capitalized on the fact that he had been with Bowie. And so we played all David Bowie songs, and he had pictures on the posters of him standing beside David Bowie. So, but that was the gig I had right before I got the gig with Triano. Yeah. And how did the gig with Dominic come along? Well, uh, it's funny because um, he came, he was, had been playing with the Guess Who, and he came back to Toronto. He wanted to start a band uh, and play what he wanted to play. And um, he started checking out all the musicians in Toronto. Uh, I was playing down uh, at a place called Fillmore's, uh, backing up strippers. And he came down and saw me and sat in with the band while we we're backing up strippers. And, and uh, he liked something about my playing. And um, but then when it came time to actually audition, I was so nervous uh, and uptight that I blew it like a couple of times. Like he kept trying me because he had faith in me <laughs> and uh, he kept trying me. And um, but I didn't it didn't work out. And uh, at the time, I wasn't quite ready. And um, and so he went through a couple of other drummers. And then one day he showed up at my apartment and knocked on the door and I opened the door and um, and he said, he called me to short. He said to short, you got the gig, whether you like it or not. And I was like, oh my God. And uh, so that's, that was the fall of 77. And right away, we, our first gig was at the Elmo Combo. And then we, uh, we were on the road and recording and the whole, that whole thing opened up. And that's, that's what I consider the start really of, of my career. And you did three albums with him. Yes the uh jokes on you and then the fret fever one and then there was i think the black market album you had done afterwards what was your experience in the studio doing those records oh man um the jokes on me actually not the jokes on you jokes on me um so oh god i was so green i uh, i'd only been in the studio maybe once before and um so you know i'm looking through downbeat magazine and it says um I don't know if your listeners are drummers or not, but they, it said that, you know, for recording, you must get controlled sound black dot drum heads. And so I went out and bought some and put them on the drums. And so that was on a Saturday. We started trying to record and they just sounded terrible. They didn't sound good. And um, so, uh, <laughs> so we had a, the first day of recording was we didn't get anything done. And, but Dominic didn't freak out. I was freaking out. He didn't, and so the next day I had to phone up the Toronto Percussion Center. I've had the guy's home number and he had to open up the store for me and get me some Remo Clear Ambassadors so I could actually get a decent drum sound. And then I did. And so we got, we got a drum and then we got like a couple of tunes on Sunday. We got caught up and everything. But the thing about Dominic Crano is other, some other leader would have probably just fired my ass and got somebody and said, let's get a pro in here, forget this. But he, he always, he had faith in me and, and, and we got some good tracks, you know, and that album is actually pretty good. I can find fault with it, but it's, it's not bad, you know, it's, it's got some good stuff on it. 
And, um, well, I learned a lot. Holy. Yeah. And what I like about those particular records is that there's a good balance between great songwriting and some fusion-esque instrumental jamming elements kind of morphed together. So they really give a chance for the whole band to shine in those situations. Yeah, that's what I loved about that band. It had some elements of fusion in it, and I've always been a fusionaire. So, uh, and then, so that um, that was, you know, I got my feet wet. And then by the time we got to Fred Fever, we had been touring a lot, and I felt way more comfortable. And I, I really like Fred Fever a lot, and I like the drum sound better and it's more open and uh it's great wasn't i wasn't crazy about the whole black market era i actually quit the band the first we, first night of a tour in sudbury ontario after the first set i quit the band because i didn't like i didn't like that, that era and i love dominic but i just didn't like that era of the band so but those two albums were great and i had such a man the, so, we did so many great gigs and and so, so much fun touring and playing and recording and it was just fantastic now, I believe after your time with Dominic is when you went and joined the Kimitchell band. Yeah, in between that, though, I was playing with this guy, Dave Bendis, and, um, who had a fusion band. And uh, so I was doing that as well. Um, but then, yeah, we had, with Dominic, we had opened up for uh, Max Webster in London. And, and Kim had watched me play, and he, he, he liked me. And plus, he had known me. He had seen me play at the Gasworks with Truck way back and uh, oh how did i miss truck oh geez i missed a big era of of uh, before dominic where i played with truck and devotion those were great prog rock bands that i played with although they didn't have like record deals and all that stuff so uh i stand by my thing that dominic was my first big gig but truck and devotion were fantastic bands i played with in 74 75 I don't know how I, I forgot that. I'm sorry. I hope I didn't offend anybody who's listening, but um, I digress. So, so, but anyway, Kim Mitchell had seen me play with Truck, but he also saw me play with Dominic. And so he just phoned me one day and said, uh, you want to do something? And and so he came in his, what he called the Brown Slum Finder, his, his brown van <laughs> picked me up. And I thought we were going to go to a, a rehearsal studio and play. But we went right to United Media Recording Studio and we recorded demos of Kids in Action and Chain of Events and two other tunes that I don't think ever ended up on any albums. But those demos were the greatest things I, that I ever did with Kim. And he, he's got the two inch tape of that. And I keep begging him that you gotta, you gotta bake them uh, before, you, yeah. And I keep saying, please, we gotta hear those things because they were fantastic. That was like, the engineer played bass in the studio while Kim and I were out on the, on the floor and it was just magical. So we hit it off musically right away. And, um, and then I dragged Bob in from the, uh, comic Toronto band, Bob Wilson and Peter for I don't know how he came in there somehow. I don't know, but he did. But anyway, so that was the start of all that. The follow-up or the first full-length album was a Kimbo logo that has since become a Canadian classic, which was hugely influential to me as a kid just first starting out on the drums. Your drumming on that album was so unique and cutting edge at the time. It just it I just found it to be incredibly inspiring and there was just something about that album that to this day just makes me smile oh that's cool and i i love the versatility of it and your phrasing on a lot of those tracks you know the the middle drum break and go for a soda <laughs> is quirky but just perfect and your groove on all we are the sort of the halftime component is timeless right so i find that album for me is still a hugely influential album wow thank you what was your experience like recording that one uh that was a good time that was um i remember uh this engineer nick Bulgona, who had done deep purple and roger glover and stuff he was the engineer and he was great and i love the drum sound i was getting um a couple of things i remember we did, um, when we did All We Are, when we got that bed track, uh, I remember Kim hugging me because <laughs> that was a good bed track. And uh, so that, that was cool. Um, what else? Lager and Ale. Lager and Ale, we had been playing that tune live with a totally different um, arrangement. And he, and we did, and so Kim said, I want to try this different. So let's just run this down. 
So we ran it, we were running it down and he's waving his arms and giving us instruction as we go, but we're just running it down, but they were recording. And then we get to the end and cause Kim said, well, let's record this so I can see how it's going to work. And then we get, and, and at the end, Kim goes, that was actually a pretty good take. Let me hear that again. And that turned out to be the run through turned out to be the, um, the take that was used on the, on the record. So, which was highly unusual. Uh, but it's kind of cool because like uh, there's quirky things about that too that like he said don't do a pickup going into like just let it hang and just uh, it, it's kind of neat it, it, the approach is kind of cool so um, it's I mean it's not complicated at all the simplest thing in the world but it's got a vibe to it that's really really but, great I like but that. sometimes simplicity can be deceptive you know I, I often yeah. find um, as a drummer it can be you kind of get in your comfort zone playing things that'd be a little bit more complex and you take the simple aspect for granted and and so there really is an art form to simplicity as oh, well that's for sure um yeah, yeah one of the other tracks on that album that also caught my attention was rumor has it which has an unbelievably oh, yeah, yeah, amazing yeah. drum intro um because i had that <laughs> album on vinyl i used to take it and slow the speed down just so i can try and figure out what you did and find a way to emulate that. I still can't play it, but it's it's one, it's one of those things that uh, I just, every time I hear the intro to that, it just makes me smile. Well, um, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that was just totally Terry Bozio influence on, on the, that's all. It's a 16th, you know, between the hands and the feet divided up. But uh, there was a, I don't know, if, if I went go downstairs right now, I could probably muster it up again, but uh, on the drums but i haven't thought about it in a long time but you know i'll tell you a secret about that is um i cut that intro by itself first with a click and then we did the rest of the song after and they spliced it together because i wanted to get that intro perfect right so rather than do a whole take and the oh, the intro wasn't was kind of shaky I, let's get the intro perfect and then we'll splice the rest of the tune on after so that's uh that's part of that deal but um yeah uh I'm trying to think of other things on that. Yeah, I can't even remember some of the tunes on that record, but uh, Diary of Rock and Old Man, that was a cool tune. That's a Man. Mm -hmm. uh, it's got that 12 8 yeah. kind of vibe to it. Yeah. So. yeah, that was cool. But All We Are remains my favorite, I think, on all, on all the albums, I think. It's my favorite Kim tune I ever recorded, I think. Um, the follow-up to that, Shaking Like a Human Being, uh, went on to be an even bigger success. I think it also tended to follow a lot of the commercial aspects, where it tended to be a lot simpler, but there's some still some really unique drumming on that album as well, which I also find to be inspiring. How did you find that experience? That was not as good. That was... Um... I would, my hands were fairly tied on that record. And, uh, I remember we did a, a take of uh, the tune, get lucky. I guess it might be the first tune on the record. I don't know. I believe so. And the take, and it was, it was hot. And, uh, I remember Pi Dubois jumping up and down when I came back in the control room and the engineer, Paul Northfield going, yeah, that was great. It was great. And even Kim went, yeah, that was great. And then the next day Kim said to me, we can't use it. He says too many drum fills. The Americans don't want to hear drum fills. You see, that was after we had been on the road with Brian Adams and uh, Kim had seen this commercials hit after hit after hit. And he was determined to write an album like that of hits, except Kim, Kim is he's quirky in his writing. So he'll never be a guy that just writes a, a normal sort of rock tune. It's always a little twist to it, which is why I love him. You know, he's fantastic. But but anyway, so, yeah, my hands uh, that kept happening a lot where he'd say it's great, but don't play it. And uh, so I, that was not, and I, I didn't like Patio Lanterns. I didn't like Easy to Tame. Um, I liked a tune called Calling in Your Arms, My Home. I think that's a beautiful tune. And, I, and, the, and there's some neat drum stuff in there too. I like That's the Hold. Uh, I don't know what else is on that record, but uh, it's overall, we were at this beautiful studio in Morin Heights uh, in the Laurentian Mountains. And, and on the wall was hanging the, the lyrics, handwritten lyrics of Sting, of King of Pain, you know, and uh, the history of that studio. And there I am playing Patio Lanterns thinking this, something's not right here, you know. So, um, but who, what do I know? Because we won a Juno for that record and Patio Lanterns became an encore tune. 
for us. So uh, <laughs> what do I know about anything? I don't know. Well, one of the so <laughs> songs on that album that always spoke to me as well, too, is uh, In My Shoes, which also has a really cool drum oh, intro. Yeah. It's got a tribal vibe to them. But I believe he once said it was inspired by uh, Fleetwood Mac groove. Yeah, and I didn't. But it wasn't inspired consciously. It, I stole it without knowing it. Like, like, and then one day I heard "You Can Go Your Own Way," and I went, "Oh my God, I I totally stole that." But I didn't mean to. I really didn't. It just I don't know. But you but anyway. But you made it your own, and it resonated with me. So it's still one of my favorite Kim Mitchell songs. It's it, that's a cool tune. Um, it's another funny story. Is we that tune goes way back. And um, when we were still with Anthem Records, we had that tune and we demoed, we always were demoing tunes all the time. And, and one of the guys from Anthem Records says, yeah, but there's no chorus or something. And uh, so, so we kept demoing it different ways and they went, yeah, but there's, you know, so then we got slap happy. So we started, we did the Rush version. We did the Chilliwack version. Uh, in my shoes, she'd been in my shoes, she'd been in my shoes too long. You know, like uh, we, we did all these wacky versions and gave it to them just to to sort of go, you know, uh, <laughs> can you guys let put this to rest now? But anyway, so uh, and even when it was on the record, that same record guy said, nah, it's not quite right. But I thought it was just fine the way it was, you know, or who knows? I don't know. It's funny. It's funny. Yeah, those those albums to me are still very reminiscent of the time when I was sort of starting out as a drummer. And they still, to me, they're soundtracks to my summer and they bring me right back to my youth because there's certain albums that will always kind of take you back. So they're yeah. timeless to me. Uh, and oh, yeah. that was my introduction to you yeah. as a player. So I, I will always right. value you and those albums for that experience. Well, I thank you, sir. That's cool. Now. After leaving the Kimitchell band, you spent a lot of time freelancing, doing a number of different projects. You also went on and worked with a lot of jazz fusion projects, yeah. and you also got involved in musical theater at that time. So can you talk a little bit about those experiences and heading into a different direction? Well, I'll tell you the whole, my demise with Kim Mitchell, uh, uh, he, Kim hired a producer who came in and said, that I wasn't a rock drummer, that he had a drummer for Kim that was a real rock drummer, and that I was a jazz drummer. So after all that went down, I, I went, well, okay, if I'm not a rock drummer, then I'm not going to play rock anymore. So that's what precipitated all the other stuff I was doing. So, but actually, I, at the time, it was devastating. But then my life got really good, because all of a sudden, I'm playing with David Blamires from the Pat Metheny group, we did a, an album, which to me is the best thing I ever recorded. And then I'm, I was playing with uh, Carlos Lopez, Earl Seymour. Um, I was doing all kinds of different sort of little jazzy things around town. Um, I started doing jingles. Um, I started doing drum clinics. Um, so I had years of doing that stuff. And then, and then I decided that um, I wanted to get into this musical theater thing. Kelso, Mike, Mark Kelso was doing Tommy. So he asked me to be his sub on Tommy. So that started that whole thing. I did 10 years of, well, I did a subbed a lot on, um, and then I would go on the road like Tommy, I subbed in Toronto, then I ended up going on the road with it. Uh, Joseph, I subbed in Toronto, went on the road with it. Uh, Rent, subbed in Toronto, went on the road with it. Lion King, I subbed, I didn't go on the road with it, but I did 450 Lion Kings. I did a lot of Lion Kings, even though I was just a sub, I, I did a lot. And then, um, Hairspray, that was my gig, finally. <laughs> I did that, and then hair, and then uh, a lot of hair-oriented things. And then I and then I decided, that was 10 years, and I decided I didn't want to do that anymore. So um, and I was playing with Larry Gowan in there, too, somewhere. That was my first foray back into the rock world, playing with Larry Gowan. Yeah, you you did a, that tour, and, I, and Peter Fredette, yeah. was also on that tour as well too. and i think you said that was one of the incentives for you to to take that yeah. gig yeah it was great being playing with peter again and um that was a really good band um actually there's a really cool thing i have it on my website of us doing moonlight desires on a french um music plus uh the french uh, much music 
And that was a really good band. It was it was excellent. So I really had a good time with that. And uh, it was good to play rock music again. But um, yeah, I'm trying. I don't know. Uh, and with Lawrence Gowan, you you didn't record with him, with the exception of an I think a cover song for a tribute album. I, I think you I, I I think you did a Neil Young cover. That's right. That's right. That's right. But I I seem to recall recording a couple of other things too. But I can't, it's hazy now, but I, I'm pretty sure we are up at Terry Brown's studio and we did a couple of tunes, but they were re remakes of tunes he had already done. And so I don't know why we were doing that, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's sometimes, you know more about me than I know about me sometimes, because uh, I forget these things, you know. I'm a big fan of of Lawrence Gowan, who I also consider to be a highly underrated Canadian singer-songwriter. Mm-hmm. And first time I actually saw him was actually in Thunder Bay. Um, they were playing at a summer festival, and that was the tour that you were doing. And oh, I remember cool. having a conversation with you sort of side stage, because it was out in a field, about yeah. Dennis Chambers, because Dennis Chambers was playing at the Toronto Jazz Festival that day. And uh, so um, we were kind of talking about how it was so nice to be at at the at the show but we it, we were sad that we were missing dennis chambers yeah. at, the, at the festival that night yeah well you can't be everywhere at once unfortunately no. so. after that as well too or around the same time we were teaching at humber college for 33 years during your time at humber you had a chance to to teach and mentor hundreds of different students now if you look back at that what was some of the advice or lessons that you tried to encourage them to follow well, I, I would I just tried to to tell them about my daily life and work and I, I tried to tell them what they needed to have together to make a living, you know. So I would bring in like the chart from the jingle that I had just done and I'd have a recording and say, Okay, the red light's on, here we count it in, let's go. And you and and you got two or three times to get this right and uh and and they'd be sweating away and messing. I said Look, if you don't get it right the next time, they're going to call someone else. And the client's sitting out there. Now, come on, you got to get this now. And uh, so that kind of thing, I would, you know, try and tell them what it's like. I would try and instill a work ethic. So they got, they know, like, if you're, um, you get called for a session at 10 o'clock, well, find out. Does that mean 10 o'clock downbeat or does that mean you arrive at 10? These are important things. Do you have a pencil? Bring your pencil. Do you have your drums sound good? Do you have new heads on them? Do you have spare parts? um you get you know how's your reading can you read or not come on you know like i'll put a chart in front of them uh is this going to paralyze you or are you going to be able to read it how about how's your reggae feel how's your shuffle you know just all this stuff that um things you use to make a living you know and and um uh so i would do all that plus i would you know give them ideas on the drums like uh try and um, enlarge their vocabulary on the drums and uh, and and I don't know, just try and light a fire under them. And some of them um, needed a fire to be lit under them. Some of them grabbed <laughs> the spark and ran with it. And which I love, you know, they were just like really eager, really working hard. I could never put up with a student that wouldn't do his his homework and would come in and try and bluff his way through a lesson and say, and and say and I'd say, okay, did you work on this tune? From and he'd say, well, I uh, didn't have as much chance. And I could tell he hadn't worked on it at all. That uh, I, you know, because in the real world, you you can't survive like that. You know, you're not going to get the call back. I, I remember I have a I have a friend that is a fairly renowned uh, recording engineer, and she had messaged me once and said, I have a client that was looking for a drummer they had basically recorded a bunch of things already pre-programmed but they wanted to re-record the tracks with a real drummer and and she said um said to me i want to recommend you for two reasons one of them is that they wanted someone that will recreate their parts exactly and secondly 
they're a little bit quirky said they're really great people but they're a little bit quirky and some people may not know how to take that and so the reason i want to recommend you is that i if i say that you're going to show up prepared you're going to be prepared and secondly you know how to navigate personality types and make it a positive experience and i think a lot of times the lessons that people learn or are taught are too focused on the playing aspect and not enough on the whole aspect of being a musician. You need to be able to socialize and interact with people and adjust to the environment that you're in. So I think that the the things that you were teaching them, I think are truly valuable skills and not everyone always takes to that. Yeah, no, it's true. People, I mean, I learned all those lessons the hard way, you know, like, like by <laughs> showing up at the wrong time or maybe um, being socially awkward when meeting the client or whoever you're recording for, or just all those things you learned. Um, or, or like I, you know, when I first started doing jingles, I kept going back after a take, I'd go back into the control room to listen as if I was doing an album. And, and finally, one of the other musicians took me aside and said, Paul, stay out on the floor. When it's done, they'll say, okay, guys, thanks. You can't go in with, with the client there and, and, and go, well, I think I, I, I'd like to play a, a different fill there. If you, you, know, you can't do that stuff that you would normally do on, a, on an album session with a band that you're in or whatever. So it's all those little tiny things that, that you learn. So that's what, you know, I try and pass that along so you so that they don't have to go through the awkward stuff that I did, you know. I uh, I took a number of lessons years ago with Rick Gratton and one of the pieces of advice that he gave me um doing session work is that when the client says you're done, you're done and that's you right. did a good job. Um, right. Because if it's left up to you, you will always want to go back and redo things and push yourself because you know what your capabilities are. Yeah. But sometimes you have to realize that you have to respect the client's view on the situation that you've done and allow them to determine when it's done. Now, of course, yeah. you want to give them a product that they're happy with so that they'll call you again. But sometimes yeah. as an artist, it's hard to let go when you always can see the things that you potentially can improve upon yeah yeah but you know sometimes it's you, you you could be playing a fill you think is great but you don't realize it's stepping all over the vocal at that point or the product that they're if it's a jingle they're trying to sell something and there's a voiceover going and they got and you can't have some busy fill underneath that voiceover you know so yeah you you but yeah when they say that's good it's good and you don't say anything else yeah there's an album you played on one track on also in the 80s by the the band the jitters and i think you played on a ballad and i remember there's a fill on this one track that i think had three notes in it so it's like it's like two hits and then a really long pause followed by another note which to me is also a really good example of allowing space to kind of help emphasize um, the whole feel and the vibe of that. So that's another track that you did that always makes me uh, makes me smile. I wouldn't mind hearing that. I, I have no recollection of that. I know I did it, but I don't have any recollection of it. I'll see if I can track it down. And if I can, I'll send it to you. Oh, that'd be cool. I'd like to hear that. It was funny because I, th I think Randy Cook played on the rest of the album. Yeah. And, I, and I had met Randy about three years ago at the Ralph Angelillo Drum Festival. And when I went up to him, I was telling him, that I've been a big fan of his work. And my first introduction to him was actually, you know, this album by the band, The Jitters, at which point he looked at me and started singing one of the songs off the album and said he hadn't, it was one of the first sessions he'd ever done and he, and he hadn't thought about that album in years. So it's another one of those obscure ones to me that I always loved. So I'll, I'll, I'll see what I can track down cool. and, and, uh, and I'll send it to you if I get a chance. That's really cool. Yeah, I wouldn't know why they would hire me for just one tune if he was doing the whole album, but who knows how that stuff goes down too. It's, it's weird, you know, um, maybe it's, maybe they heard me play a tune on a Kim Mitchell album. They thought, Oh, well, this tune we have is slow like that or something. And maybe Paul would be good for it. Or so who knows? I don't know. Now in the early days, it says that you really kind of were self-taught later on, you became 
quite extensive in terms of the people that you connected with and you really devoted yourself to your studies and you've had a chance to take some lessons with a lot of really renowned teachers looking back who were some of the teachers that had the, uh, the biggest impact on you and what were some of the most important lessons you learned from those experiences well my very first teacher lou william lou williamson who worked uh, in the drum department along with quades he was my first teacher. He taught me how to read in a really clear and simple way that uh, I didn't get messed up. And uh, so that was huge, huge. And then um, Pete Megadini, who was my main teacher, uh, like when I was about 19, he just opened me up to a world of, of jazz. And we did all kinds of odd time stuff and Anthony Cerrone's snare drum book. and play along jazz tunes and different Latin styles and polyrhythms, of course, because he, he had written his books on polyrhythms. And then, um, and then, you know, later on, I, I, I did a lot of studying. Well, I got the Canada Council grant to study with Peter Erskine, which was quite an eye-opening thing for me, which was not about um, any, we didn't write anything down. It wasn't technical, but it was just the concept of music and making music and playing in phrases, playing musical motifs and um, playing music, uh, not drums, playing music. So, but then also, you know, I, I had any anybody who came to town, I had a lesson with Joe Rosenblatt and um, Tom Breckline. And when I was in LA, I uh, studied with Erskine. I also went over to see Chad Wackerman, uh, Tony Bronigal, with, played with Bonnie Raitt. Um, Alex Acuna, that was that was another thing. I wrote some stuff down, but he just played, and man, that was that was a heavy lesson. Uh, yeah, Daphnis and uh, Mike Clark and Ari Ari Honig, um, all these guys were just one-offs, but I learned something from each one of them, you know. But the major ones would have to be Pete Megadini and then Peter Erskine, um, that were were major. Uh, but you know. I mean, I'm a student of the drums until I die, and I'm always transcribing new stuff, and not as much as I used to, but I'm still always working on new stuff and thinking about, well, you know, all of a sudden I'll get a brainstorm, I'll get a, a, a flurry of new ideas, and I'm, I'm back on finale there, writing it all down. So I love that, you know, because there's always, a year from now, I know there'll be something new that I'll be working on, and that's, that's cool, you know. Now, to follow up with that, um, because you've always sort of been um very diligent about notation and track and writing down your ideas you went on to write and publish two drum books one being the long way to polyrhythmic creativity on the drum set and the right. other one was the long way to musical phrasing on the drum set so what made right. you finally want to put your ideas into a book well uh the polyrhythm book actually came from my friend jd you know, it's a store called Drumland, and he was taking lessons from me, and I was teaching the polyrhythm stuff, and, um, you know, and I had sort of taken the ideas I learned from Pete Megadini and done my own thing with him and wrote out all this stuff, and he finally, he said to me, you, you should write a book of your approach to polyrhythms, and, and I went, nah, and he kept bugging me, and, I, and finally I said, okay, I'm going to do it, so I did it, and it took me four years because I didn't know anything about writing a book, and I think I restarted it about four times, but I learned a lot. And Rick Gratton was huge in helping me with finale. I had to learn, you know, the, writing polyrhythms in finale is probably the hardest thing you'll ever do. And I started there, you know, so I really a huge lear learning curve I had to do. And um, and then so I did all that and, the, and then recorded the tracks that go with it and everything. And then the phrasing book, because I had just so many ideas in that department and i had written an article from a couple of articles for modern drummer and um and i was amassing all this phrasing stuff so i thought oh, i'm gonna i'm gonna do it again <laughs> and um but that only took me a year you know but uh it's a big undertaking i don't know whether i do it again but i i really like my phrasing book a lot i think it, i think it's good you know so um, yeah, I, I remember my introduction to your polyrhythms book was coming to your house for a lesson and saying to you, I'd really like to discuss 
applying polyrhythms to the drum set in a musical way, of which you smiled and laughed at that point, said, well, I'm just in the midst of writing a book called Polyrhythmic Creativity on a Drum Set. And you gave me a couple of early examples of those, um, which I found to be really valuable just in terms of getting a better understanding first on how the phrases fit together, but also putting them in a way that makes them musical. Um, Yeah. Along the lines of what I'm sure you learned from from Peter Erskine, it's not always just about playing the ideas, but playing musically and with intention. So you want yeah. your thing, your the things that you play to 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 have that kind of flow to them. So I, I think it's a great introduction to that. It's one of the hardest books I think I've ever worked through, but it's one that I definitely revisit again on a regular basis. That's cool. I. I uh... Yeah, it, it does have some hard stuff in it, um, but um, I mean, when you think about uh, like Chafee's book, where where he has groups of five sixteenths over two beats with um, notes removed in the center and all and whole strings of stuff like that, like that Zappa esque kind of thing, it's doesn't it's not as hard as that. That's that stuff is. Boy, that's that's really you have to have a computer brain like Vinny uh, or Virgil Donati or something like that to to decipher that stuff and be able to play it. But it, you know what's funny about polyrhythms? Um, I did uh, a Cape Breton drum fest with Paul Wurtico once, and he said to me, he looked at my book and he gave me an endorsement for my book that I used on it. I think he did. Um, and but he said my he said my approach to polyrhythms is totally organic. I don't think about groups of five, seven, or six. Or he said I just play random stuff. And if you're see the thing is if you Dennis Chambers can do that too. But if you're you have to have an inner clock that is so strong that it's always there, and you play just this random stuff. You, uh, not my man. You play all this random stuff, but inside you still got that pulse. Not everybody's blessed with that, you know, and um, it's a really scary world to get into just to randomly go out there and and then try and come back. And so, uh, <laughs> yeah, um, but it is interesting, like organic beats uh, anything like like things should sound organic, even if they're technical, even if you've worked it out and you've studied it. When you play live, it's it's got to sound organic or it'll just sound stilted and forced. And yeah, it's no good. Over the years, you've done a considerable amount of session work, whether it be albums, uh, jingles, uh, work for television. I know you did some soundtrack work as well. Um, With the industry changing away from a lot of the traditional recording studios into the home studio environment, I do know that you've adopted a setup at your house that allows you to do remote recording. What are some of the projects that you've been able to do outside of your home studio? Uh, well, um, I'll go backwards. Uh, recently, this guitar player, Jeremy Green, who's a great guitar player who's from Toronto, um, and he uses like Keith Carlock and all these heavy guys. But anyway, he approached me, and I've been recording with him a bit. Uh, another guitar player named David Barrett, I recorded some stuff with him. Um, I've done a couple of albums for Dan Clancy, the singer of Lighthouse. There's another thing called the Canadian Cover Crew or something, doing cover tunes of famous Canadian tunes. Or not even, no, it's not even Canadian tunes, it's just tunes. So I, I've been doing that. Uh, my band, I've recorded and done video. I've done videos a lot with, with all of these things, because uh, that's part of the deal now. Nobody just wants audio tracks, they want video too. So. I have to. I had to learn how to use Final Cut Pro a bit. Um, what else? Uh, man, I'm drawing a blank. Just random tunes for different singer songwriters. People who decided during COVID that this was their chance to record. So I actually got pretty busy during COVID doing random to just one off. Sometimes, sometimes an album. Sometimes just a couple of tunes. I did an album with my son. Uh, um, he plays guitar and sings, and so we did an album together. Um, what else? I mean, I've done a lot of um, just drum stuff that I've posted on Facebook, you know, play along with City Nights by, you know, the Alan Holdsworth tune that 
Gary Husband wrote uh, actual proof, just different projects to keep me uh, sane. But yeah, no, I got, I got very busy doing all that stuff. Whereas before COVID, when I was just out playing all the stuff, you know, I could go months without recording a track at home, but then it just became, I was doing it all the time. And right now I, ha I have two, two tunes to do for David Barrett. And oh, and Don, oh, my friend Don Baird, we have a neat little project going, Baird DeLong, where I don't know if you've heard any of that stuff, but it's, we got. I, I did, you yeah, posted yeah, some yeah. of that. So. It's really cool. So we have, he's, he sent me a new epic today to work on. So um, yeah, so it's cool, you know. Uh, it doesn't all pay great money, but um, I'm trying to think of what else. I'd have to go back and look at my uh, calendar. But yeah, we've been pretty, it's been pretty busy. I found that the pandemic was a great motivator for people to finally get around to building home studios, even if they're just something simple, just to, to continue to work. Um, it was the same sort of thing in my situation. I had a really small little setup. I had no idea what I was doing. And then I got an email from a friend of mine who's an engineer said, our studio is shut down. Now I have time to do my own projects. I need drums on a song. Can you record drums from home? And I said, I can, I have no idea what I'm doing <laughs> and you don't have to use it. And at that point I only had the capabilities of using two microphones, but I'm willing to try. Yeah. Um, and she ended up using it and the track turned out great. And then I have another friend that does film scores. And so I've been doing some stuff from him remotely because I've, you've got the setup capabilities. Yeah. It's all a learning process. I have a lot to learn still. We all yeah, do, sure. but the best way to learn is to by jumping in and actually just doing the projects. Cause if you always put off those opportunities, there isn't the same incentive to, to, to really get to the point where you are sort of comfortable with this and recording yourself and listening back to yourself is also a great education Oh yeah, because when you're sitting behind the drums, everything sounds and feels good. When you're listening back to the playback, it's amazing how the dynamics that you felt don't always translate once it's actually on record. So I encourage, you know, all musicians to take the time and, and record themselves and listen back. Yeah. Um, and don't be too critical, but be honest in terms of the things that you can work to improve upon. And it's just going to help all of your skills. Yeah, no, I definitely think um, uh, some stuff improved when doing all this recording for me, for sure. Um, my, I think I, I've got a pretty good sense now in my old age of what to play and what not to play on somebody's song to not destroy their song, but to enhance it. And I listen to the lyrics and, you know, all those things that that young musicians don't necessarily get right away. But um, yeah, there's a, yeah, it's a, it's a very, I love the process now. Oh, I just did an album with this guy, Dan McLean Jr., who uh, used to be a Humber student many, many years ago and some really cool stuff. So I just did an album with him as well. Yeah. So, uh, but anyway, yeah, it's, uh, it's big fun. You, uh, you commented that one of the things that you're doing now too is also, you know, reading and listening to the lyrics for a song. And I found for myself, I'd often hear the rhythms of the words that people would sing and what was going on, and that would inspire the things I want to play. Mm -hmm. But as I've gotten older and started to do more session work, I also find myself reading the lyrics and paying attention to the lyrics. And it's amazing how much it changes your approach once you make that personal mm -hmm. connection with a song, because it's it, it allows, I find, the song to breathe more, because now you can play yeah. with the intention that uh, that's required for them. Yeah, no, it definitely, um, I always want to hear the vocals up loud and, uh, even if it's a scratch vocal or whatever, I, I gotta hear it and, uh, definitely gonna influence what I play for sure. Aside from the home recording that you're doing, you're currently involved a lot working with Brass Transit, who's the Chicago tribute. Yeah. who are outstanding and that's keeping you fairly busy you've also started playing with lighthouse their original drummer skip prokop had passed away i think you've kind of stepped up and are kind of taking on that role which has to be a, a really unique experience considering you were such a big fan of the band in your development years yeah no it is it's, it's quite an honor and um 
I just did this, uh, we just did a cruise actually, on the blue cruise down in, uh, sailed from Miami down into around Mexico, uh, Belize and Costa um, Maya. And uh, yeah, it was great. It was really fun. Um, let me tell you about my last few weeks. I was in Florida with Brass Transit. We flew to, did two shows in one day. Then we flew to Seattle and flew to Vancouver, played with the Vancouver Symphony, came home. About two days later, I left to go do the cruise with Lighthouse, got home. The next day I flew out to Canton, Ohio to do a Jeans and Classics gig. That was this last week weekend. So uh, yeah, it's kind of a, uh, it's getting back to the way it used to be, which is great. I like being busy. The uh, Jeans and Classics project is basically a combination of taking a rock band with an orchestra and celebrating sort of the, a lot of the classic rock music. Mm -hmm. You've also worked with Roger Hodgson from Supertramp in an or in an orchestra type of situation. Mm -hmm. How do you find the experience working with an orchestra compared to a traditional band? Well, um, when we do these uh, shows, uh, we have there's a conductor, and you know, like, but with a this rock band with the symphony kind of thing. I mean, I count the tunes in, but I do have to watch him if there's any sections, you know, it goes back to my theater days that I do have to watch him and the endings of tunes when there's a retired, I look over and, and we do it, you know, the retired together, hopefully. Um, and, you know, I don't have the orchestra huge in my mix. I sort of plow ahead playing with the band and they're either with me or against me because if I listen to them and they're rhythmically dragging or whatever it's going to only mess me up so i i plow ahead and um because sometimes they're right on and they're great and sometimes they drag a bit or they you know that things are not sitting right so if you if you zone on them too much it's going to be a horror show so um most of the orchestras we play with are fantastic but even having said that they're still they don't have a like a, a funky sense or a rock sense sometimes even though they're capable of playing incredible stuff so things maybe don't sit the way you want them to so um yeah so i i basically we we play the way we play and hopefully the conductor is going to bring them to us <laughs> and um make it sit the way it, it should you know but yeah it's a different trip you know it's weird like doing theater that's a different thing because you you are following the conductor and he may slow you down a bit and then pick it up on the next second, you know, so you really have to follow the guy and, 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 and pay attention or they get angry. So. And in a theater situation, one of the things as well too, is that you're following a conductor who's aware of everything that's going on on the stage and has to that's make right. really fast changes to make sure everything flows. And yeah. so mm -hmm. if you don't catch that change, it can derail everything so so it's actually mm -hmm. really quite a quite a stressful gig i i had a chance to do some theater stuff last summer and i got some other stuff coming up again this summer just for uh some youth theater things and but i hadn't yeah. done that sort of gig in probably 25 30 years and although i was very yeah. well prepared just getting into that environment again um and and realizing you can't get distracted by what's going on on the stage you can't get distracted by the fact that your monitor mix is not that good you can't get distracted with the fact that the drums seem to be too loud in the environment that you're in but there's a sound guy that's controlling everything and then you also have the the conductor and then there's another assistant conductor who's conducting the the cast for the vocal stuff and and the timing on it can be a little bit weird but it's it's a blast there's something that's really sort of exciting about you know getting to the end and being able to 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 pull it off I tell you, the most exciting thing in theater for me was the day that I did the whole Sunday star crossword during Lion, during Lion King. I, I finished the whole crossword during the show. Now that's a, an accomplishment. I'm serious. That was good. <laughs> one of the productions I, I did last summer, it had, there wasn't a lot of drum set stuff in it, but 
so you can get really caught up in kind of different elements, but then you have to realize, hey, wait a second, I got to pay attention here because I have one note that I need to actually hit. And if I miss that note, it's going to be significant. So I, I, I it's very <laughs> stressful, but it's something that I, I really love. And those are the sort of things that make you realize that all of the time that you've invested to develop yeah. those skills really was worth it because it's not a gig that everyone would be comfortable going in to do but it's a great learning experience yeah no it, it, it is you got to be cut out for for that scene and i know lots of great musicians have tried it a couple of times and went no this ain't for me but i i liked it you know i i, I really got into it and um uh yeah i really enjoyed that time but i there's no way i'd want to do it now like to the thought that i'd have to be Okay, you know, it's 20 to 8, and at 8 o'clock, I'm going to be in that pit doing this show again. I, I couldn't take it. But back in my 40s, you know, it was, like, wonderful. All right. As we uh, start to wind up our interview here, it's got a couple more questions here for you. Um, are there any opportunities in the music industry that you have not yet had a chance to do that you would love the opportunity to do? Well, I, I don't know why I don't have the gig with Peter Gabriel because I, I want to play with him. I always want to play with John McLaughlin. Um, those are two, those will be two good ones. Um, it's funny, one time I was out for a drink with Gary Husband and Alan Holdsworth. And I said to Alan Holdsworth, you know, I, my whole life, I, if I could just play one song with you, I'd be happy. And he said, well, we should do it. And, uh, and <laughs> but that didn't happen. Uh, you know, I mean, there's uh, there's probably uh, you know, there's a, uh, playing a sting or somebody like that. There's there's all kinds of stuff that I would probably love to do, but uh, but I mean, I'm I'm pretty happy with uh, it's weird, you know. You think well, you're playing in tribute bands, but actually, I, the thing about my life now is I all the music I play, I love. I have my own band playing Mavish and stuff, and I have a big set of clear vibes to play it on, and. So I kind of enjoy like what I have going on, you know, so uh, it's all right. Because you've been a sideman and a freelance musician for so long, how do you find the experience running your own band with the one word jazz fusion project? I'm terrible. I'm a lousy leader. Even when I was in school, I remember the teacher on my report card said, Paul is an excellent student, but he should work hard on developing his leadership qualities. I never was a leader. And uh, I try, I try, and but I take care of business as far as, you know, collecting the money or trying to make the band happy or, you know, whatever. But as, uh, yeah, I'm not a great leader. I, I'm better as a side man. I really am. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, do, do, you know um, find the things that you're comfortable with that you do well and sort of stick, with, <laughs> stick with that as well. Yeah. Um, now, in closing, for anyone that wants to kind of see what you're up to, or to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Go to my website, www.pauldelong.com. And there's a, um, you know, I have all my gigs I list about two months at a time and as a bunch of stuff there. But there's also a contact uh, sheet there that you could, if you want to contact me, that's, that's the best way. So, yeah. And in closing, is there any things coming up this year that you're really excited about? Yeah, I have more gigs with my band. I, I got uh, April 9th and 10th um, at the Rex with my band and also May 4th with my band in Peterborough. And the exciting thing about that is I, I saw the Mavishnu Orchestra live at the Gardens May 4th, 1973. So it'll be 50 years to the day that, and I'll be playing that music. So that'll be really special for me. That'll be really cool. Fantastic. I really appreciate your time. It's always a pleasure to connect with you. And when things get a little bit more settled, I, I've been saying this for a long time, but we will reconnect again for a follow up lesson because it's time for me to come and, and, and pick your brain again. <laughs> well, I have a few new things for you, but it's hard because you've you seem I've, I've had, you've had so much so many lessons. You probably play my stuff better than I do now. So well, it's been a challenge. I've been fortunate, particularly over the last few years, to you know to get a chance to connect with uh, with with a lot of you know great teachers. Yeah. Some people always find it funny that you that you would want to study with more than one person, but everyone has something of value to offer. Oh yeah, no, 
It's great. And even if it's just a one-off, there's just something mm. that's nice about collecting this information and being part yeah. of the community. I found the biggest yeah. thing for me connecting with you and a lot of the other people that I've connected with over the years is just expanding my community. There's something really fun and joyful about being able to look at the people who are heroes and inspirations to you and being able to have conversations and reach out for them. So I think for me, that's one of the things that's been really nice about, you know, the internet and the social media aspect, because it can be used for good in order, yeah, in order yeah. to connect to build the, build the <laughs> community as well. Yeah, no, I agree. Totally. Yeah, for sure. For sure. It's always a pleasure. I look forward to connecting Likewise, with you sir. again soon. And yeah. I appreciate your time today and all the best of success. And, and I hope that 2023 is an incredible year for you. Right. Thank you, sir. Same to you. I hope it's all, it's all a, a good year for you and uh, that things blossom forth. Always appreciated. Yeah, man. Been listening to the Drummer's Pathway podcast. Please share and subscribe to get the word out and let's keep the discussion going. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.